Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. You know, I didn't see it count me in Santiago, but I can see it recording. So we are here with Torrance Cost. Torrance, can you please introduce yourself to the audience of Blueprints? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. My name is Torrance Cost. I'm the campaign director for a nonprofit organization called the Wilderness Committee. I'm calling in today from my home on the territories of the Cowichan people, uh, so-called Duncan, BC, on Vancouver Island on the West Coast. I originally reached out to you when I was trying to understand BC politics a little bit more, specifically environmentalism and progressive politicians. But um, that drew me to the Wilderness Committee, and I've been following their work and reading some of the publications that they've been a part of, some investigations that I found really intriguing. Tell us a little more about Wilderness Committee and uh, what your role is as a campaign director. What's that look like? Yeah, so the Wilderness Committee is a 42-year-old environmental organization founded uh, here on the West Coast in 1980, kind of around a coffee table. Some some grassroots advocates uh, decided to get a little bit more organized and and try to do this work in a concerted way, um, and and put an organization together that was exclusively volunteer-based for the first almost decade, and then since has grown into a medium-sized environmental organization in the landscape uh, here in Canada. Um, we have close to 30 staff, staff in four different offices, um, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and Southern Vancouver Island, and we work on a whole host of environmental issues. We were founded to fight for the protection of iconic old growth forests on the West Coast. And since then, our work has expanded to working on climate issues, uh, mining justice, endangered species policy. Um, because of our model, we're, we're funded by individuals, right? We take uh, very little grant funding and zero corporate or government funding. So we rely on individuals to to keep us afloat and it's it's a really neat model in that you know individually there's there is a limit that that to what people can can do to solve these huge systemic problems but if you have a hundred dollars a year to spare and thousands of people put that in um that that can really uh make a big difference and it's sort of that pooling of resources and that collective action um that's sort of behind the spirit of the organization it's what drew me um to the organization almost a decade ago and what has kept me here and keeps me so excited I, uh, I joined the organization as a campaigner uh, on the same issue that we were founded on, uh, the protection of old growth forests. And despite it, you know, there being some successes, some wins, uh, there is still really unsustainable logging uh, happening uh, in BC and across Canada and, and the need for better policy, better laws and, and more protection of these irreplaceable ecosystems. 
Um, in 2019, I became the organization's campaign director. So I still lead our uh, old growth campaigns here in BC, but I oversee all of our campaigns nationally. So I work with our campaigners in Ontario and Manitoba uh, and, and the other campaigners here in BC to advise on our strategic direction, support them. And uh, that part of it's really rewarding too. My, my, my interest is in holistic solutions, right? If we protect every ancient tree in, in the country and have the most sustainably managed forests in, in the world and then run pipelines through them, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and build new fossil fuel infrastructure, that's not a solution. And, and vice versa, if we have 100% renewable energy, but really unsustainable logging or destructive mining pro practices, that's not, a, that's not an overall solution either. We need to be making this change uh, all together. Uh, that's, that's why the Wilderness Committee works on so many issues, and, um, and it's what I'm most excited uh, to be a part of. Before we get into the old growth, because I think the old growth logging, I think that'll take us to many other discussions, right? And especially it being a campaign you've worked on for so long, I'm interested at 42 years, you say the organization has been around. I don't imagine you've been there the entire time. I might be making presumptions <laughs> no, about your I, age, I, but <laughs> I haven't been alive the whole time. Not even close. <laughs> I hope you're familiar enough with the organization, though, to kind of give us an idea of how that focus or that fight has shifted over four decades I see a lot of the work you're doing now um, emphasizes the power structures that are involved and, you know, getting information out there, I think, has always been part of the environmentalist movement. But can you give us an idea of how that how that change has been like over time? Yeah, I think I think the environmental movement in general hasn't hasn't done well um, historically when it comes to understanding and, and grappling with power dynamics and the way that power works. Um, I think that the foundation of the modern environmental movement in, in the early 70s and into the 80s was very much coming from a, you know, a, a genuine good faith approach, right? These are problems that we don't know enough about them or that we just need some more understanding and some more knowledge uh, to make better choices. Um, and after 40 years of, of campaigning, you know, uh, organizations like ours are, are clear that, look, you know, we, we do understand that the way that our uh, economic system in general operates and, and specific injuries or industries, pardon me, uh, operate is is unsustainable. We know why. We know how. We know how to make it different. But um, the, the, the people and, and institutions that benefit most from the status quo are really reluctant to that. And they have a lot of power and they wield it well to 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 fight uh, against any change. And so um, we have shifted a lot more both at the Wilderness Committee and I think the environmental movement in in general to to calling out uh, to calling out the bad actors right and naming the systems and the institutions at the root of the loss of biodiversity or uh, the changes in in the atmosphere that are impacting people worldwide um, 
I think this is a good thing, right? Um, another huge shortcoming of the environmental movement is proper class solidarity and solidarity with working people, with marginalized groups, with indigenous nations, and uh, a more fulsome understanding of, of power uh, is starting to come with better understanding of that and where we need to stand in solidarity and build bridges and broaden our movement. Um, so, you know, the trajectory is, is, is hopeful and positive, I think, but uh, the, the, the pace is, is still not there. We need to move quicker um, because a lot of time has been, has gone by. It's, it's late in the day. Yeah. I think a lot of people have critiqued how long, the environmentalist movement stayed in the information raising awareness stage of a campaign, which needs to be done. But yeah, there comes a time to escalate. You know, I think what you said at the beginning about how your funding is structured plays a key role in your ability to call out power. Even government grants, we know, can be really problematic in terms of what you can, your end product can look like. And you know, the second guessing that goes on when you have to answer to certain funding. But I guess, you know, it is the reality that not everyone can sustain all of their work that way. But certainly a goal for most organizations, I think, to work towards. I've worked inside of so-called progressive think tanks that rely heavily on corporate funding and government funding. And there, I found them equally as prohibitive uh, both parties were very interested in what that result would look like, regardless of how many voices were brought to the table. It was still very filtered. And um, that is promising to see like groups being able to sustain themselves without that because you guys are up against big money, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, I know you're not there, but certainly a lot of the critique around uh, COP27 or COP27 is the heavy influence of capital there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any, any comments there, Torrance? I, I saw you tweeting about it, so I know you have an opinion. Yeah, I've been to I've been to one uh, COP, climate COP uh, myself, COP21 in, in Paris in 2015. Um, we're actually sending a small delegation to uh, COP15, which is the biodiversity COP coming up this December in Montreal. Uh, Canada's the host for that one, and it's uh, there's a similar convention uh, it, it, um, in the UN structure, but on biodiversity and and uh, rather than climate. And just like on climate, uh, there are strong pledges and commitments made by all the parties, all the nations around the world, or most of them, and not followed up on. Um, my experience uh, at the one COP that I've attended and, and, you know, long conversations with friends and colleagues who have attend, attended subsequent ones and, and previous ones is that, you know, it, it absolutely is, is structured uh, along uh, lines of both state and corporate power. Um, you know, the, the entire pavilions event sponsored by the fossil fuel industry as if, uh, you know, reforming or tweaking or changing slightly the fossil fuel industry rather than getting rid of it altogether is what's needed this late in the game. Um, and then just, you know, the, the sheer influence that stronger, richer countries have, right? You go to uh, a session and there's negotiators, you know, three negotiators on stage, you know, one from the U.S., one from 
Saudi Arabia and one from Mauritius or, or a, another low-lying uh, Pacific country. And, and the negotiator from, from the small island nation says, look, you know, I can't go home for the holidays after this because my, my family home is underwater now because the seas come up so much uh, in the place where I grew up. We need to do this, this, and this, and we need to do it next year, right? And then the mic gets passed to the negotiator from the U.S., and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, rather than rather than those two things next year, what about these two things in 2045 or 2050, right? Like it's just, and then and then you know, whoever's leading the session says, yep, you know, the delegates from the from these countries, like the clear prioritization of um, of of powerful interests and 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 the economic status quo and those who are already positioned. Uh, at the top, sort of in that order, that's what um, that's the kind of dominant feature at the COP. Um, and and that said, you know, I do have a lot of uh, respect for for a lot of my colleagues from the activist uh, world that attend them because it is a place to uh, speak truth, right? To get a little bit of attention. If if none of us went, then all of this greenwashing would just sort of go unchallenged, and and that's even potentially more dangerous. Um, you know, the, the fanfare around the Paris Accord, for example, uh, you know, was, was challenged at the time, um, you know, acknowledged for the good that it did contain, and then really the, the drawbacks of it were pointed out in real time. It still got celebrated, and it still overall was framed as a good thing. Uh, but without that challenge, that's, that's um, it, it's a dangerous, uh, it's a, there's a dangerous risk that that greenwash could just could just run amok and become the dominant narrative and and because this idea that getting on the right track or doing better is so appealing everyone on earth all eight billion of us want to believe that inherently because it's our future and, and the future of of our loved ones um that's a really powerful narrative and 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 it could easily take hold if not challenged um, and then finally it's a space to connect with other activists um, one of the most powerful uh, moments probably that I've ever witnessed in in activism was uh, as as the the COP 21 talks were were kind of coming to a head in in Paris and winding down and it was getting clear which things were going to be in the agreement and which weren't. There was a unsanctioned impromptu action. Um, all the all the protests in the in the conference space have to be. Um, have to be uh, like applied for. You have to get a permit for them, which is really weird and sort of counter to the whole spirit. Um, and and there was an unsanctioned action called, and and hundreds, uh, if not a couple thousand, um, civil society reps went and actually blocked uh, one of the negotiating sessions and completely surrounded it so that people, the negotiators in there, couldn't leave the space. And eventually, um, the 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 conference center police came in and cleared everyone out, and it just sort of turned into this sort of general protest outside in one of the causeways. And there was no sound system and there was a people's people's mic, like a call and repeat. So, you know, a couple dozen people stood around the speaker and yelled out what they said. And and uh, Yeb Seno, who I believe now is an activist with I think he might be the leader of Greenpeace in, in Southeast Asia. He took the people's mic and a couple conferences before he was he was the lead negotiator for the Philippines. Right. A, a low lying Pacific country. Uh, very, very impressive impacted by the impacts of climate change and, you know, whose people have done 
much less uh, to cause it than, than we have in rich countries like Canada. And he said he has been at the negotiating table shoulder to shoulder with the people making the decisions. And then he's been back in the villages and, and the little towns in his country and others around the world. And he said it's that second group that's going to make the change. It's the second group that's going to save us. Um, and, and the change doesn't happen inside these conference uh, centers. It happens at home in our communities in the streets. And, you know, that was something that I, I haven't forgotten since and, and, I, and I never will. Um, and, and that I try to, um, you know, r remind myself of, of every day. I was reading through uh, Dr. Sindra Sharma's thread on her experience at, at, at COP27. She described it as dystopian. And one thing that really was disturbing for me is the reports that there have been attempts by northern countries like Canada to divide the global south. And then you also just finished mentioning the greenwashing that occurs here, but the, the preference given to really powerful voices. I don't know. I, I almost lean towards a disengagement of these from activists to remove any validity from it at all and create spaces where the net same networking can be done and, you know, how you amplify that to the level that these corporations can is hard, but that's particularly harmful space to have, to know that that kind of meddling is going on in the larger global movement because we know, you know, you mentioned all the countries that you're talking about, these low-lying countries are part of the Southern Hemisphere and the wealthier nations that we're seeing trying to play really negative roles in all of this tend to be from the North. And so, yeah, I, I imagine a disengagement might be more effective than simply participating in this, but that's hard to be measured. Folks often, I think, don't understand the level of barriers put up by the Canadian government and the impact that we have globally. I just want to draw attention to the Hill Times uh, report that I saw. I think the headline there is, Canada's among the worst in the world for the number of big oil reps in their official delegation. So just so I'm, I've never gone, just to get this straight, Canada has an, a delegation that likely taxpayers pay for and is chosen by maybe one of the ministries. And they're including executives from big oil and gas, like the same folks that are in that amazing article, The Dirty 30. I imagine there's some crossover there. That's right. So there's there's generally three groups that are that are at a conference like COP27, um, and they're delineated uh, by by uh, you have to get a badge to get into the conference space, um, and and your badges. The badges are different colors. Um, at the one I went to, they were pink, green, and blue. Uh, I don't know if they're the same now, but the the one color is for official government delegations, and these are the delegations that are uh, officially. Uh, 
from the the party, right? The COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and each party is a different is a different uh, nation state, and and they get to bring uh, a select number of people um, for their delegation, right? It includes the the head of state and the ministers if they're attending, um, subnational leaders as they're called at the UN. Um, we call them premiers uh, here, uh, or or uh, provincial environment ministers um, or, or resource ministers. Um, then there is the, the wider delegation that includes negotiators, so technical experts from both the uh, provincial federal level. Uh, there's often uh, municipal governments represented on the, on the um, federal de delegation. And then, uh, then again, chosen leaders from uh, environmental groups, uh, indigenous nations and industry, and so yeah, uh, the 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 Canadian delegation regularly includes reps from uh, the fossil fuel industry, which is just absolutely uh, outrageous in terms of, of the whole point, right? It includes reps uh, from the from the renewable energy sector uh, as well, um, which is a bit more understandable. But the the influence of, of corporate power there is is really um, is really, really surprising that the second two groups are civil society, right? So these are uh, people that have applied for and gained access to the conference by the UN, but not with their country's official delegation. So again, industry is uh, part of the civil society uh, group as well, but mostly civil society comes from uh, the advocacy and, and activist spaces, right? So the youth delegation that I went on, we had civil society badges is um, most of my friends that are there now are there as civil society reps, you know, either sponsored by or representing uh, a larger environmental organization. Um, and and that civil society uh, group is probably the largest at COP. Um, and that's where you meet, you know, people from around the world working on these kinds of things. And, and that's the value in going. Uh, and then the third group is the smallest, and that's media. They have a different color badge. Um, they're allowed different sets of access. And, and they're there to sort of cover uh, and report on what's happening. The question, you know, to, to loop back around the question of, of the utility in it and, and yeah, you know, the, the presence of the fossil fuel industry there, both as uh, civil society uh, representatives, um, you know, even in the space at all, let alone in official members of the national delegation of, of countries that are supposed to be there to fight climate change. Um, it paints a grim picture, right? And I think there is a really strong case for uh, for, for not uh, putting time and energy into the space. Um, like I said, I, I went seven years ago and I, I haven't been back. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I might never, I don't want to say I'll never go to another one, but I don't have immediate plans. I just, you know, for my limited time capacity, you know, there's there's things that make more sense to me right now. That said, the reason um, that there is some attention and accountability towards the presence of fossil fuel interest and the inaction is because of folks from activist spaces that are there. Right. Um, a lot of what we know about these conferences, uh, a lot of the international solidarity that's built out of them, um, there are side coalitions established, um, you know, in the in the side rooms of these conferences while world leaders are gathering, not doing enough. 
um, civil society delegates, again, from around the world are gathering and talking about what we actually need. So there's that potential and that power that I, I do think has some value. And, and it's why I, uh, you know, again, feel, feel proud of uh, my friends and colleagues that, that you choose to go and engage in that space. Um, I think there's strong arguments for, for both. No, you're cer- you certainly point out a good value because I think that brings us back to some of the work that Wilderness Committee is doing in drawing attention to exactly who's making the decisions, why some of the talking points that even come out of our governments aren't exactly on point when it comes to the damages of fossil fuels and particularly in BC when it comes to old growth logging. I absolutely love that approach, uh, lifting the veil, because I think so many people understand corporations as these really separate entities and entirely blame them. But the reality is that the government, you know, plays a huge role in facilitating all of this while giving us different snippets in the media, different great they tell us what we want to hear front facing and then we see something completely different. Um, looking through the, those 30 folks that listed much of the BC NDP key players are included on that list as well as big oil and gas. I know that won't surprise a lot of people, but I think it does would surprise progressives across the country who don't, um, have NDP governments and who work very hard to get them, that they've not actually been a huge ally um, as they should have been. What's your, you know, Horgan is on his way out. A new premier is on his way in. I see you have a phone zap to welcome David Eby to his office and pressure him to keep his promise. What was his promise? I'm sorry, you're going to have to remind me. I'm trying to find it, and it's very vague. You know, like, I'm going to immediately accelerate action. What do you expect What do you expect from this premier based on your previous experience with the BC NDP? We, we, we don't totally know what to expect, and that's why we're trying. We're working so hard right now to, to, to frame it and to, and to use the, the few things he has said to, to paint him into a corner and to hold him accountable to, to what he should be accountable to, not, not what he's going to say was his plan all along in a year or two years or three years. Um, the NDP in itself uh, has has made strong promises on old growth. In the last election, they called a, a snap election in the first year of the pandemic in 2020. They had been in a minority government, um, as the federal government is now. They'd been in a minority for three years, and they saw an opportunity. They'd handled the pandemic very, fairly well up until that point, and they saw an opportunity to call a snap election and, and gain a majority, which they did. They formed the the strongest uh, the, the strongest um, uh, NDP government in terms of amounts of seats, uh, I believe, ever in Canada, for sure in BC, um, and 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 have ruled with a majority uh, since. Um, in that election, they promised to save old growth forests. Right, that's a that's a pretty clear promise. Um, you know, I made sure to screenshot the Facebook ad <laughs> the day it went out. Uh, Why you didn't then, think they were going to hold their word even then? No, no, I didn't. Been in it too um, long to know better. Yeah, 
the since then uh they haven't um again not a not a surprise but they've they've laid out a, a a plan of action that is in itself pretty solid um the ndp is really good at this they uh commission studies they receive some recommendations and then they allow the recommendations and the plan to be conflated with what they're doing and because the recommendations are good and the plan is good uh they they point to that and and really create this public narrative that they're a good progressive government on it because that's uh, because there's so much known and there's so much media fanfare about the recommendations and the plan. Um, in the in the um, in the lead up to this, there was a really controversial, uh, shuttered leadership race for for the leader of the BCNDP. Uh, premier Horgan announced that he was going to not finish out his term as premier; that he was going to retire at the end of the year. He announced that uh, in the spring, and then there was uh, a lot of controversy around the way which uh, David Eby uh, became leader of the party, which we can get into a little bit more. But well, we, we did an entire episode on okay, it. Okay, so great, great, great. I'm great. hoping folks can. Um, like, yeah. get what Listen they to need that there. One. Listen to that one. Learn about Anjali. <laughs> and, and yeah, okay, we're up to speed. Um, <laughs> the the premier-designate EB, you know, he's been really quiet. He's a, he's a downtown Vancouver guy. He comes from, you know, and, and this is touted by uh, NDP partisans here, he comes from an, an activist background. He was a, he was a um, civil society lawyer, uh, a human rights lawyer, uh, you know, doing a lot of activism. I know friends that, that met him at uh, NVDA trainings uh, for resistance to the 2010 Olympics, right? And he was the lawyer who would show up and train activists about know your rights stuff and about uh, civil disobedience stuff and, and, and how to get arrested. And, you know, that, that's like a lot of my friends, that's the first time they ever heard of this guy. So I remember there was some excitement when he ran for the NDP. Uh, he ran and he unseated the, at the time, premier. He, he ran in a, in a fairly uh, wealthy uh, riding in in Vancouver, and he uh, he unseated Premier Christy Clark, um, and and was sort of you know lionized for that, and there was a lot of excitement. I'm so sorry, my my Bluetooth headphones died. I was on a tangent about the BC NDP, wasn't I? Yeah. So you had introduced you know uh, a bit of a hopeful David's history, and and but that he has been a little bit quiet since. And you know where I'm going to start pointing you is back to that race. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wouldn't say that. I think to say that he, you know, was a was an activist and on the downtown east side, you know, doing a lot of legal representation and civil society work, uh, and and kind of popular because of that. It's not like. He did that and then has been quiet since, you know, he's been in opposition MLA and then for the last five years, the attorney general of BC, right, as the government has continued to fight against Indigenous rights, as the government has continued to persecute land defenders from Wet'suwet'en to Ferry Creek, he's been their top lawyer, right? He's not vocal out in the news talking about the need to build pipelines and keep logging old growth, but he is behind the scenes covering the government's butt when it comes to 
when it comes to uh, the legal side of things. So I, I, I think that he has a much more active role than he often gets credit for. Um, he keeps a, a relatively uh, low profile in terms of, of these big controversies uh, when it comes to the environment and climate. He's more vocal and well-known on, on other issues uh, like housing. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of been his background. But on old growth, particularly, he he's kind of played both sides. Uh, he's made statements since he announced that he was going to come for leader, uh, run for leader. Uh, prior to that, I don't remember him ever speaking publicly on the issue. Um, since seeking uh, leadership and, and eventually getting it, he's been asked more and more about it, uh, and his answers have ranged, right? In in some instances, he said, we have to do more. Uh, in another interview, he concerningly said, uh, you know, we need a lot more certainty about the where the old growth is. We need better inventory and better maps, which made me shudder. More consultations? Because, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what the NDP forest minister at the time said as soon as they formed government in 2017 he said we just have to get a better understanding we have to get more knowledge of where these at-risk forests are in 2017 and 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 at that time that minister was himself doing a classic 90s remix of the last time the ndp was in government and and there are environment ministers from the ndp governments of the early 90s on record saying oh we just need a little bit more certainty around old growth we need to understand where it is so it's extremely that was extremely concerning then, after the party uh, quashed the, the leadership uh, hopes of, of Angelia Padurai and, and the, the thousands of people that joined the party to support her, uh, and, and Eby was named premier-designate, uh, he, he knew he had to appeal a little bit to that side of the party and, and, of course, to the public that cares about these issues. And in his first speech as premier-designate, he named five issues, uh, and, and one of the five was accelerating the, the province's action on old growth. So what he meant by that, we don't know, um, you know, and but, but, but we're very much going to hold him to the promises that the government has made and, and of course, to the action uh, that's required out on the land. I'm just kind of snickering because, like, that, that is such political language for him to use. You could quite literally read... I could be a big oil and gas exec and or logging executive and hear that and be like, oh, well, that could be good for me, too. You know, what yeah, kind of action? Yeah. 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 So again, I, I, I think he's playing. I think he's sitting on the fence right now. I, I think him and his inner circle aren't sure what's more politically advantageous to, to come out really strong on this uh, and pull support away from. Uh, the BC Green Party and to really solidify support from their environmental ring, wing, or uh, is it better for them electorally, uh, the only thing the NDP cares about, to keep this slow plodding course uh, that, that keeps uh, logging companies a little bit uh, a little bit happier, that eats away at the, at the, um, at the support uh, to their right, not so much to their left. Um, a key piece of context here that I always try and uh, remember um, to, to mention, especially when I'm when I'm talking uh, to audiences outside of, of BC, but it's especially important now because federally we have a Liberal Party, right? And and for the last century, uh, a lot of the federal governments here have been Liberal governments. Um, 
when it comes to, you know, big L liberals, red, red Justin Trudeau style liberals, we don't have that party in BC. Um, we don't even have it in name as of today. Uh, there is a party called the BC Liberal Party. Uh, they were government for, for 16 years from 2001 to 2017, but they were never liberals, right? They were a coalition of center-right and right-wing uh, political interests in this province. Um, a lot of their cabinet ministers went on to be cabinet ministers in Stephen Harper's governments. Um, the, the premier's office and uh, Stephen Harper for his prime minister's office would trade staff all the time. The, the political ideology is conservative. Um, and as a result, the BC NDP has a ton of room to build electoral success in the middle. Um, obviously, uh, the, the uh, Liberal Party of Canada has been popular enough, at least for a minority government, um, if not a majority, uh, since 2015. They enjoy popularity here in BC too. And the BC government, the BC NDP has clearly said, look, if, if we fill that role, if we step up and be the Liberal Party here, because there isn't one, um, we can we can win elections, right? And and that again seems to be their goal as opposed to um, social democracy, let alone democratic socialism, um, like it says in their constitution. Um, so yeah, I always try to, uh, you know, a lot of people know that, that the BC Liberal Party isn't a Liberal Party. And again, today they just voted to change their name. They're, in a couple of weeks, they'll be called BC United, which like, are they a soccer team or what, what are we doing? Um, so well, I guess so, they will be at least feigning the Liberal. Uh, they know they've been replaced in terms yeah, of that yeah, Fodor an, likes to call them an, orange liberals. It's an important piece of context here, though, because... Um, you know, in BC, the the analog to Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland, uh, the the sort of liberalism and the centrism uh, that is behind so many of the problems we see socially and environmentally, the the analog here provincially is the BC NDP. I mean, I've, that's hard to hear, but again, n not a huge surprise because I'm going to go back to that leadership campaign as, you know, you know, full disclosure. And I don't think there'll be much of a change in how the BC NDP operates. And that's just from an outsider perspective, knowing how the NDP operates as a cookie cutter right across the country. Their insistence that EB be anointed is rooted in the need for everything to stay as it is. And um, I think it's, we can't talk about old growth logging and David Eby without talking about the letter that the steelworkers, a local steelworkers union sent out to its members that labeled activists within the party, environmentalists, eco-socialists as extremists. Although a lot of us take issue with that part of the letter, the most important part, I think, that pertains to the conversation that we're having now was the, it was entirely based on the idea that the only way to keep old growth logging going would be for David to win, that he, and you know, as a political scientist and someone who's just kind of lived within the NDP for too long, that to me reads as there was a, an understanding that it wasn't 
explicit that any promise had been made, but to me that letter read as some sort of understanding and knowing the connections that the previous premier has with that same particular, with the United Steelworkers. I mean, that's a huge tension, I think, that surprised someone from Ontario. I always understood the tension that exists between workers that rely on these industries at the moment and the idea of a transition away from fossil fuels. You you hear it when you go to the door. You know, I've run as a federal candidate, and that's one of the biggest things, that people know what we need, right? They know that fossil fuels are bad, and but they— they have been told many, many times the narrative is it, it's a job killer, that there's not plans to to help workers through this. And, you know, we see a similar refrain in Alberta where progressive, so-called progressive government, uh, for some, the only hope for climate justice. I, you know, we can talk about the Green Party, I guess. But that, I think, would surprise people that tension exists in labor as well, like organized labor that is working with the NDP was a source of conflict in terms of doing the right thing by way of old growth logging. Yeah, this is a, this sort of general topic is, is, is fraught, uh, but it's also one of my favorite, right? I, I, I spoke you know, earlier about, about how, you know, I recognize the, the, the failure of the environmental movement to, uh, do proper working class solidarity and to and to fight for solutions that uh, protect and uplift working people and and don't leave them behind, um, and and I care about changing that. Right, I, I come from a from a I come from a resource family myself. My dad was a, a gill netter, uh, and he had to give that up uh, in my in my childhood because the fish the fish stocks were collapsing uh, and he worked the rest of his career as a welder. Um, my mom's a seamstress. My partner's a public school teacher. Um, the Wilderness Committee is a unionized workplace. We're one of the first unionized uh, environmental nonprofits in BC. And I, I, I care about um, solutions that work for everyone. I, I don't believe in the sort of, you know, the, the Tories and Teslas is sort of the knock on a lot of uh, the old school Green Party um, reps uh, and, and sort of the vision, right? This, you know, solar powered, windmill powered uh, neoliberal capitalism, right? That's not a solution in, in, from my perspective and from the perspective of most people that I work for. So I care about building bridges with labor unions and for finding ways to uh, align policy and the way resource industries operate with ecological necessity. Those are bounds we can't change, but we can change the way our economy is organized and the way that people benefit and the way that we uh, develop our societies and economic infrastructure to to help the most people and and to create a good, stable life for for people everywhere. but the, the, the animosity between the, the logging industry generally and the environmental movement is, is as strong as it's ever been. And there's an inherent conflict between groups like the Wilderness Committee and logging companies. We're okay with that. Again, we, we just published a report called The Dirty 30 talking about the biggest polluters. Um, we are okay with that uh, enmity. Um, and we feel that uh, a lot of these companies need to be reined in and uh, align their models with, uh, again, that ecological necessity or get out of BC. Um, and get out of Canada. And, and, and again, that's a fight we're comfortable to have. 
what I what I don't like is is fighting uh, with with the other side of industry, and that's labor uh, and 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 workers more generally. Um, this isn't a new thing. The uh, predecessor to the United Steelworkers, in terms of a big uh, vocal logging industry union, uh, was the IWA. And in the early '90s, the IWA they they put out like like lots of unions put out a calendar. Uh, and one of our one of our uh, legendary campaigners at the Wilderness Committee, he actually became the first paid staff at the Wilderness Committee in the late '80s, uh, and he did a lot of advocacy around old growth in the in the late '80s and early '90s. Uh, his name's Joe Foy, and I think in '94 or '95, the IWA put out a calendar, and one of the months of the of the calendar, uh, the photo was uh, of old uh, VW Bug. And it had spray painted uh, Joe Foy's car on it, and it was riddled with bullet holes. Right, which is just like a staggering, oh a staggering threat, uh, because things were so tense uh, then, and he was so labeled as a killer of jobs and someone that was out to, uh, you know, save baby owls and throw loggers and their kids out in the streets. Right, that was the level of red rhetoric, and again, that was twenty years ago. Uh, th- sorry, thirty years ago. Um, and so this isn't new, but as you know, the social safety net, as uh, as as you know, the kinds of things that uh, the systems that really make this place an, a nice one to live in for lots of people uh, have have degraded, and the logging industry has fallen upon sharper and sharper, uh, di- more dire and more dire straits. Um, the, the this this tension has grown stronger. This tension has gotten to the point where uh, the conflict is more common and the conflict is more heated. Um, in the late 1990s, the the rate of logging and the uh, number of jobs in the forest industry decoupled. So until then, for the first hundred years of the sector, if the rate of logging went up, the number of jobs would go up. And if the rate of logging went down, the number of jobs would go down. So there was that clear, oh, if we log less, there'll be less jobs. That was a clear thing that was instilled on this province for 100 years. In the late 90s, because of globalization and mechanization, that changed. And the rate of logging has gone up and down and up and down and up and down. And the rate of jobs has just gone down. Mills have closed, shifts have curtailed, and things are hard if you want to, or if you already do, work in the forest industry. And so a scapegoat is tempting, right? There is real pain and hardship in logging communities, right? People can't make their mortgages. People have, are faced with the impossible choice to, to move so that their kids have more opportunities or can even intent, in, attend school or stay in the place where they grow up and the only place that is home for them. Um, that's real and that's hard and it's a simpler narrative that it's just because there's too much conservation and too many parks uh, and that's why things are bad. That's why people can't log log like their uncle used to or like their grandmother used to or whatever. Um, And and the, the, the reality, which is a bit more complicated, is that the corporations have never done better. They've never posted higher quarterly profits than they have in the last five years. Things are incredible if you're one of the big five logging companies and then even a lot of the smaller logging companies in BC. 
because they close mills and slash jobs for the same reason that they clear cut endangered caribou habitat because it's it's good for the bottom line, right? Um, there is uh, there is a sort of simmering awareness to that, but it's really uh, it's really hard to break through. Um, the environmental movement needs to wear some of the blame for this, right? A lot of the poor class analysis and sort of the lazy, oh, these are heartless loggers that cut down trees because they don't care, that, that, uh, that's the legacy of our movement and, and we need to grapple with that and we need to try to undo that. Um, but there has been the concerted investment by government and industry, right, to the point where every time an, a, a politician and uh, speaks about it, they say, oh, you know, we, we love old growth, but we have to think about rural jobs, too. They make that connection almost unconsciously. Um, and of course, the, the NDP, you know, is, is more effective. They can do that with a greater level of authenticity. Uh, the conservative uh, party in in um, in BC, you know, up until recently called the BC Liberals, um, they they can't make that argument, right? They can't say, oh, we can't forego old growth protection because you know there's we care about rural jobs because they clearly don't, right? It's everyone calls bullshit on that immediately, whereas the NDP can make that argument a bit more authentically, and they do again and again and again. Um, so this is so a that, tough piece. That actually makes them more dangerous. Absolutely. absolutely. In terms of the shifting that narrative, right? Like people believe them, the people that shouldn't do. That's a real manufactured tension that you talk about, you know, that exists. I'm glad you made the point that there is no longer that correlation between um, increased logging, increased jobs and vice versa, because that that exists with a lot of dirty industry that they're awful job providers that, you know, building pipelines is like this burst of jobs and then a lot of layoffs. And continually we're watching so advancements in terms of corporate advancements that are leading to allowing them to scale back on labor costs. And so it's it's actually ironic that they're billed as job creators when it's actually very precarious employment in the dirty fossil fuel industry. Um, yeah, in, in oil and gas or in timber and fiber from the forest, you know, the companies, they always talk about efficiency, right? And in a, a, a jurisdiction like Canada, where there is stronger wages uh, protected because of the blood, sweat and tears of the labor movement, um, the, one of the most effective ways to increase efficiency is to slash jobs, right? To get those resources to market with fewer people's hands touching them here. Um, and, and that's what the companies are always after. And then, and then you know, uh, they turn around and call us the job killer. If, if I was up to kill jobs in the forest industry or in the oil and gas industry, I would just close up the Wilderness Committee and, and let the companies do it. Right. I'll never be as good at it as as the big oil and gas companies or the big logging companies. No, no. And I think like a lot of your efforts at the Wilderness Committee battle all sorts of different narratives. Right. And disinformation lies. Right, We can call them lies. But without obviously we don't have time for you to debunk all of the myths. But, you know, when I'm going through your Twitter feed, I'm th I, I see things like drawing attention to the blue hydrogen and all the other ways that big oil and gas and the logging industry 
sell literally this certain narrative. And then you folks have to do a lot of research to get the evidence behind it to publish something that counters this narrative. Then you need to get it amplified to the level that they do because they're assisted by their the ministries associated with them, right, in doing this. So can you tell us what other big areas that you need to really be combating misinformation so that folks can be more effective, right? Like pointing out power structures is is one of them. People misunderstand exactly who's calling the shots. We talked about this manufactured tension between workers and and a just transition. What else is out there that we're just, we're not getting right? Yeah. Um, where, where, where to start? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, I, I want to speak quickly uh, about the power of, of these narratives and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I spoke a little earlier about how a lot of greenwashing is, is so effective because it's stuff people want to hear, right? People want to hear that there's a techno fix like blue carbon or like carbon capture and storage uh, that will mean we can not pollute ourselves and, 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 and soon leave the atmosphere uh, and, and w- without having to radically change the way uh, our, our societies operate because everyone knows how hard that will be. People want to believe that we have the most sustainable forest industry in the world because it plants trees and they grow back. People want to under understand these things. Um, it, 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 it's hard because there is so much unknown and, and the real solutions do require this departure from the status quo. Uh, and all big departures often always come at the expense of regular people, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like uh, the, the shock doctrine as described by authors like Naomi Klein and, and um, you know, when, when there's these big moments of change within our current system, those in power game it to benefit themselves and benefit the wealthy, right? You can look at the rise of, of billionaires during the pandemic and, 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 and you know, as a, as a very recent example. Um, in terms of the sort of the, the, the misinformation, I, I mean, a classic one, uh, there, there's misinformation and then there's just sort of a societal missing of the point, <laughs> to put it for, for lack of a better phrase. Um, the big one for me is around Indigenous rights and, and UNDRIP or the, the United, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, you know, this was was passed with the UN a number of years ago, signed on to by by all but I think four countries, and it's like the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, right? Countries that have a, a clear vested interest in indigenous rights not being too widely recognized. Um since then, you know, governments in, in Canada and, and subnational governments like DCs have, have made a lot more uh, sympathetic statements towards it. And in, in 2019, BC became the first, I think, the first jurisdiction in North America to pass uh, UNDRIP um, legislation that, that we call DRIPA or the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. 
And at the time, the whole deal was around like the whole conversation and all the, you know, very smart uh, pundits, I'm doing air quotes, you know, their big thing was, oh, does this give consent to Indigenous people? So if a logging project or a pipeline uh, or a mine is set to go ahead and the Indigenous nation says no, uh, a mega dam, right? An offshore oil and gas projects, the, the list go on and on. If the Indigenous people say no, does it go ahead or does it not, right? It was, it was, is it a veto, right? Is UNDRIP a veto? And to me, it just, it, it was sad because it, it showed how far from, from getting it we are, right? If, if, if we think about, you know, uh, at its very core, we have this colonial, we have two or three colonial levels of colonial government, right? Federal, provincial, and municipal. At any given time, there's multiple jurisdictions that exist over Indigenous lands. How do we figure that out, right? It's it's not easy. It's really messy. But at the end of the day, it's a relationship. And when we think of any other relationship that's based on respect or consent, we would never use the term veto, in it right you know if you're if you're in a relationship with someone if you have a partner right you you have you know uh, agreements and understandings they can be financial they can be social intimate uh and and ideally those are consent those are based on consent but i would never say like oh yeah my partner has like a veto on financial decisions right that would just be such a weird way to frame it right and and even though i would never do anything without her and she, and, she, and she wouldn't do something without, you know, like, like in effect, that's what it is. But just the fact that we call it that, that that's where our mind goes. Oh, if first nations have consent, if sorry, if indigenous peoples have consent, that's a veto, right? It, to me, it, it underscores how far from really getting it we are, how far from getting it that we, we have to, that we have to come together and, and form an actual meaningful relationship based on trust that features consent, but that isn't a veto right just just in terms of that framing it's a it's an interesting piece and i don't know what you said that kind of sparked it for me but you just sort of asked what else what else i kind of watch for and to me it's that whenever the topic of indigenous rights come up i'm, I'm always watching and most of the time politicians of, of any stripe ndp conservative or liberal uh bring up veto and it's just you know what what are what are it doesn't bode well to me that that's where our mind goes so quick. How do you ensure that the work you do at the Wilderness Committee is decolonized and including Indigenous voices? Yeah, uh, this is the this is the thing I think about the most. This is you know when I'm when I'm awake at two a.m. staring at the ceiling. It's it's mostly about this topic and and you know the answer is as as best we can. Right would be the one sentence answer, but. It's hard, right? You have an environmental movement that in itself is uh, formed on these problematic lines, right? Um, even the, you know, uh, and especially the, the history of, of Wilderness Committee and a lot of the language that we and other groups used in the 80s and early 90s, um, pristine, untouched, these words that uh, invisibilize um, the, the, the existence of prior nations and of indigenous peoples, even the term uh, wilderness, right? When you look up the dictionary uh, definition of, of that term, it's, it's extremely cringeworthy. 
um, that wasn't sort of the, the founding ethos of the organization and it's not sort of the value. That's not how we define wilderness. Um, we talk from time to time about changing our name. We probably will one day. Um, it's not at the top of the priority list right now because odds are when we hear from people in communities, they're, they're concerned about how we work and what we do, not what we're called. Um, and, and that's what our focus is on. So um, it's a learning process. Um, it, it, like everything we do, it, it's tempting to rush, right? Um, you know, this is an urgent question. How does an uh, environmental organization exist and advocate for lands and waters that aren't ours as, as white settlers, as, as settler uh, people in, in BC and Canada? Um, is that possible at all, right? That's a really tough question. Um, and we're, we're doing our best to, to learn and unlearn, to show up in spaces where we're asked to uh, and to pipe down when we're, when we're asked to as well uh, by folks uh, in, in communities. Um, you know, it's, it's hard, right? There we, we get conflicting advice, you know, uh, people from, from an indigenous nation, there's, there's 204 in BC alone, right? And we'll hear, oh, you know, the, the wilderness committee or your movement should do this, this, and this, you know, from, from one person, uh, and then, and then something entirely the opposite, sometimes from someone else in the same community, right? And so navigating that is, is extremely, uh, difficult. Um, Again, you know, I talked about the relationship sort of between Canada, for lack of, you know, as a, as a structure and, uh, indig and, and all the hundreds of Indigenous nations. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that, that, that can be distilled down to the, to the personal or I guess the organizational level too, right? We, we do lean into our relationships and we try to honor and show up um, for those, right? We, we built connections and partnerships and, and authentic friendships with people uh, from First Nations in BC um, from, from day one when we were founded in, in 1980. Um, a lot of those are still uh, ongoing and, and, and live and, and, and things that, you know, we, we cherish and, and try to honor. So that's um, what we look to in, in that regard. But, uh, you know, it's always second guessing, always uneasy. And um, we do our best and, and, you know, try to really recognize uh, how far we have to go on that front. The first thing I thought of when you mentioned the BCNDP needed to, you know, take better stock of where the old growth, uh, and then you tell me, you know, 214 Indigenous nations within the, the province, one would only imagine that's a complete breakdown of a communication if one is not tapping into that immense resource of knowledge that exists with Indigenous folks who have been caretakers of the land for time immemorial. And yet we sit there as white, as settlers saying, well, we just don't know enough about the forest yet to protect it. And that that is just such a huge issue for me, because especially from a government that enacted or was the first to kind of put undrip on the books. But there's, I mean, there's endless examples of Horgan's government just having policies and working with the RCMP in complete contradiction of that document. Um, that would be an entire episode in itself. I feel like greenwashing. I'm looking through my notes and just like the length of our conversation so far. And I, there's so much to talk about around greenwashing and perhaps COP27 and, and just, you know, I, I just feel like another episode 
brewing on top of this. There's just it, this is our first episode really that dove into climate. You know, we're a pretty new podcast, so I feel like this has opened the door for a lot of other conversations that need to be had, especially amongst progressives who put a lot of efforts into climate action, maybe within the party or whatnot, that will be better served now, better have a better understanding of the barriers that are in place. And they're not just kind of your typical barriers um, that we would have assumed, you know, in terms of capital and whatnot but yeah yeah the the alliance there there is a a natural alliance and and this is you know been been talked about around the around the world but you know it, it comes up in conversations around concepts like the green new deal but there there's a natural alliance the 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 um general income inequality and all the problems that stem from that and the climate crisis stem from the same cause and so there is there is all kinds of paths that uh, put us on a better trajectory and and start us building towards a future um, that that is actually survivable in, in terms of climate change that are better than things are now for average working people. Um, it's just been so poorly articulated, and you know, again the 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 tropes of you know people who want climate action you know being being uh you know idealists or totally out of touch with you know people who have to make rent or uh put food on the table and then you know a lot of middle class uh white predominantly environmentalists being sold on this myth that people who work in the oil and gas industry are are heartless brutes who you know do drive their huge trucks through a swamp on the way to work every every day just to do a bit of extra damage right both neither of those things are true right a, a lot of environmental activists come from working class backgrounds understand these struggles and are part of them uh and a lot of resource industry workers uh are extremely concerned about changes to the climate um and and the impacts of that on their on their futures and so there is that natural alliance there and you know, in, in, in the political space, you know, the, the, the parties on the center and the right uh, really lean into that division, right, and really uh, appeal to the second group and say that, oh, environmentalism is about putting people out of work. Uh, and then, you know, the, the center, right, the, 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 liberal, um, the liberal side of the, of the spectrum, you know, the, the Liberal Party federally or, or parties like the BCNDP here, they, they're not that belligerent about it, but they use that, they don't challenge that uh, myth, that false dichotomy. They say, oh, you know, it's a challenge. We have to balance the environment and, and, and jobs. You know, we, we can't go too far on one because it'll come at the expense of the other. Um, and so I think, you know, a, a powerful way to sort of transcend that political calcification is for alliances to be formed uh, amongst the environment, between the environmental movement and labor uh, and, and other working class um, movements to, to kind of take back the narrative and say, no, we need these solutions that will make things better for average working people, that will make things more affordable, that will create the security uh, and and the you know the, the the solid job that people can depend on, and that will be there with a robust social safety net while we set 
the rarest ecosystems off limits to extraction and while we dramatically reduce our emissions. These things are possible and if and if both sides kind of call for that, um, then the, the charade will fall apart and, and both the right and the center uh, won't be able to won't be able to spin to spin the narrative anymore. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of work to be done in terms of the just transition, coming to a consensus on what that looks like and communicating it so that there isn't that, that tension that we talked about before and that you brought up again. That um, it, And you can't really blame people, and I know you're not, but for buying that messaging. When we've seen the government act on industries swiftly, quite often that has laid off a lot of people with very little support, ask the East Coast, right? They know all about that. So the mistrust that exists and and the diminishing social safety net, that's scary. Like, so yeah, we we totally get it. And it'll be interesting to see how those relationships go forward. Because I, you know, it's it's all part of first recognizing the need and, and, but they had that cooperation with labor and, uh, Again, I know there's some folks that are trying to work within these progressive parties to bring them around to, you know, better policies and holding to their promises. But I guess that's always a kind of exhaustive endeavor within politics, making folks. Yeah. No, making them hold their promises. Yeah, it's absolutely understandable. A lot of the the policies and the changes um, in in cases of of extraction, the limits that that the Wilderness Committee and others are calling for, if they were just to be implemented uh, within the status quo, they would result in uh, in hardship. Right? They can't. They, it can't be siloed, or it, these changes uh, can't occur in a vacuum. They need to come with that holistic change. And, you know, the environmental movement and, 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 and my organization, you know, for its part and in, in over our history has has shied away from that a little bit. Right. You know, partly because of, you know, the insistence to stay in your lane uh, or, or things like that. And, and partly because it was seen as strategic. Um, but we need to be advocating for this this system uh, level change. And, and and again, you know, no environmental organization that's as old as ours has has uh, done a great job of that. Um, we're working to improve. There are some bright spots, you know, some places where we've done this well. Um, but but that message needs to be uh, clearly articulated and and without blame in the in the meantime. Um, again, you know, it is tough when a lot of the uh, folks that I would like to ally with in that effort, um, you know, in, in parties, political parties like the NDP and in uh, labor organizations like the United Steelworkers, when rather than being willing partners in that, in building that narrative, they're, they're often the most hostile opposition you know, um, uh, a few years ago, just before the pandemic started, there was a huge strike uh, by the United Steelworkers against the biggest logging company on the West Coast. They're called Western Forest Products. And it was bitter, right? And the company was trying to claw back pensions and create more allowances for contractors and, and non-union workers and, and all this horrible corporate stuff. And the, the steelworkers were fighting them bitterly. And, and I was like, 
this is like they should be. The, the, they, these workers deserve these rights. Um, Western Forest Products is terrible. And just because I oppose their logging practices doesn't mean that I think that the workers should have their benefits clawed away or anything like that. And so, you know, we organized people to go out and stand in support of, uh, of them. Um, of the steel workers at these rallies, right? And I, I talked to rank and file members and those conversations would go pretty well. And at the end of them, you know, I'd go up and approach the leaders that were there, like speaking at the rally. And it was often, you know, like I, I'd say the term just transition and it was like I it was like I cursed their grandmother's name or something like that. It was it was like a dirty word, right? There was this level of of gaslighting, right? Where, you know, the, the, the older union leadership would say, you know, oh man, like, you know, if environmentalism, like you guys won in the nineties, right? Like when I got into logging in the late 1970s, we used to cut down trees with eagles nests still in them. And you should have seen how bad the logging was. It's way better Progress. now. All, all true, right? It is, it is better now, but that's sure, nothing yeah. to be proud of. Um, and they, you know, the, the one, the, the, the leader of a local during that strike said, if I was an environmental activist, I would be sitting in my backyard, sipping daiquiris because my job, and I was like, daiquiris, really? Um, but, but it's well, this, aren't we it's, glad they aren't environmentalists? And, <laughs> it's this certain, and it's avocado it's this, toast, by the way. It's this certain, yeah, I'm a millennial. It's this certain mindset, right? And, and again, that power is, is really entrenched, right? You know, it's often referred to in the BCNDP as the old boys club uh, for lack of a better word and also that's a perfect word right (laughs) (laughs) and 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 how do we how do we overcome that and we do see you know some positive ways to do it but it but it requires uh, it ironically requires that the very thing that's made harder uh, that's been made harder during the pandemic and that's and that's face-to-face connection um, in 2017, up until the end of 2019, uh, when, you know, we were planning to start again in 2020 and then COVID started, we would host like town hall meetings, public conversations in logging towns, right? If we want to do a public meeting about old growth, you know, in, in downtown Vancouver, we can get a couple hundred people there, no problem, but they're and all preaching our- to the choir a little bit. Totally. So we would hold them these meetings in small towns, you know, on, on northern Vancouver. And like we do we do events with like and we're, we're like counting the people in there and we're like, this is like this is like one fifth of the whole town is here at this meeting. Right. Like a big chunk or 10 percent of the whole town is, is at this thing. And, you know, people would come, you know, out of the woods. They'd have like Carhartts and high vis vests and chainsaw oil and sawdust. So literally on, out of the woods, not just out of that the blue. Day. Yeah. And and it was intense, right? I don't I don't thrive in that face to face context. And like I would be I would be nervous to the point of throwing up before we'd start the meeting. And we'd have these conversations that were that were fascinating and 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 mind blowing. And and you know the the one that sticks with me. I think this was in 2018. We had this guy show up, and he was he was you know adamant that we were wrong, that we were saying the wrong thing. Um, you know, he, he, I think he interrupted us like 10 times, kind of like in our introduction, right? Like he was, he was fired up and, you know, every second question he would put up his hand and say, no, that's wrong. And he was just, he, he really, really pushed us. He worked in the, in the logging industry and we finished up that meeting. I think he stayed late and talked to us 
And, and then a couple nights later, we were like two hours down the highway in the next town doing the same meeting, right? We do like these series of meetings and maybe five minutes into the meeting, I, I was up on the stage and I noticed this movement in the back and this bright yellow flash. And it's this same guy. It was this high vis vest from the town before a couple of days earlier. And he came back in for round two and we were like, oh man. And same deal, you know, he was jumping in the conversation all the time, really compatible, really challenging. We wrapped up the meeting. He stayed after and talked to us as we were like, we were packing up our projector and packing up our tables and stuff. He helped us carry it out to the car. And then he gave it to us in the parking lot for another like 20 minutes. And he operated a small forest license on the, on the west side of the island. And he said, look, you know, the way the industry's structured, I have to sell some of my cut as raw logs and I have to log old growth and a lot of the changes. And I said, right, like, like how much, how many hectares do you manage? And, and he told me, and it was a small amount. And I said, look, a, a lot of the big system level problems are the big players, the, the huge corporate licensees. And, and a lot of these changes need to be targeted at the biggest players uh, with space and funding to help smaller operators like you make that transition. And he said, yeah, but you're never going to sell that to the fuckers in Victoria, right? Referencing the provincial government. And I was like... <laughs> Like I think those guys are fuckers too. Like I, I, I. <laughs> you bonded you know, over your it, hatred for it, politicians. It, yeah, Aww. but it took like it took like four hours of yelling at each other back and forth, right? And 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 after decades of this tree huggers versus loggers trope, or you know now it's climate activists versus versus oil and gas workers. There's that animosity and there's that pain, and that has to be worked through. And you know how you do that at scale, right? With, with thousands and thousands of, of climate and environmental activists and thousands of, of resource industry workers. I, I, I wish, I wish I had that formula, but that's I know I feel like that if that was a TikTok series and you had recorded the whole back and forth, <laughs> yeah, you won't yeah, have okay. to replicate those hard conversations yeah, a million yeah, times over. Yeah. Like we can't have torrents cost everywhere, but because that's such a good analogy. That's funny. That instance predated TikTok by three or four years, but but it's a uh, yeah. You're right. That that would have been a, a way. Um, but yeah, that and then and then also how we don't be naive, you know, on that front, and 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 how we how we reckon with the fact that a lot of resource. Uh, a lot of, of, of working class folks in resource industries have been targeted and recruited by far right movements, right? This is, you know, the, the, the I love oil and gas kind of uh, astroturf campaigns on the, on the prairies and, the, you know, everything from the, the crossovers between sort of pro-pipeline activism and the truckers convoy, for example. Um, you know, we need to be cognizant of that and... Um, you know, in, in terms of other alliances that we're building, right? As we try to, uh, as we try to, to move to decolonize our work and to do this advocacy in a bit better way, uh, a lot of, uh, of folks that, that we work with out on the land from Indigenous communities aren't super keen to work with, you know, the, the, the local logging contingent in that town, right? Um, that the strike was welcomed by a lot of land-based activists from indigenous nations on the coast because they could go out on their territory without, you know, F, F-350s filled with, 
with big loggers out on the land, right? That's a that's a that's a piece that we need to to learn and grapple with. And and again, that concerted effort of uh, the, 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 the rising far right to tap into that angst and pain in, uh, in resource communities and, and amongst working class people, that is a huge thing that we need to be weary of and, and cognizant of. Um, there's a, a group, there's several grassroots groups to advocate for uh, the forest industry. Um, and, you know, their, their sources of funding are really shadowy. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are, there's a huge need to, 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 to be cognizant there and, uh, and to think about, um, that sort of dynamic when we're trying to build those alliances. I appreciate you explaining all of the ins and outs of the political relationships over in BC. I think a lot of it is replicated in varying circumstances throughout the country. So there's a lot of value to folks starting to understand how this works and, how the approach needs to shift away from awareness raising to really kind of challenging those power structures. But, you know, I love where the conversation went there in terms of communication. That's just the word that keeps coming to my head, like in terms of building trust with the various communities and that you talked about as, and challenging that narrative. So I, I appreciate that folks like the wilderness or, uh, Sorry, I appreciate that folks like the Wilderness Committee are out there, you know, amongst many, many other people doing that kind of work. And I I want to thank you. I feel like we could talk about this for a really long time. My producer is going to be very jealous. He missed this conversation, um, Santiago. And um, but, yeah, I think it just it's going to lead for lead to a whole lot of other key conversations that will probably play out here on this show. Uh, so I might have to bug you to come back, Torrance. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 any any time. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, and and you know, it's interesting that you met, mentioned communications, and and you know, in 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 trying to talk about this and and working with media, uh, I, I I struggle a lot because you know I feel like it's been an hour or more here, and and we barely scratched the surface, and and most of the inquiries I get on these issues are from like you know, CBC News, where they play two 10-second clips, or, you know, uh, uh, the Globe and Mail, where they run one quote, right? And, and so, it's like your least favorite quote, right? Your least... Oh, yeah, they always pick the worst the, the, the worst watered thing watered-down version. Interview. But at the end of the day, it still only is a five-minute interview, right? And so long-term, long, long-form podcasts is, is my favorite... Um, my favorite means of, of, of media to, to, to go on and speak of because it's the only one that you could even come close to doing justice, right? I feel like this was a good introduction to a lot of this, right? And it's as long as, you know, every other media interview that I've done this year, probably, uh, all put together. Um, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I'd be happy to, uh, to come back on. Great. Like maybe it'll be part of a series. Like we tend to branch off like that. So like I said, it's the first time we've really gotten our feet wet in terms of uh, the environmentalist movement and climate justice here in Canada. So definitely something we need to build on. And uh, I do appreciate it. I was very much educated, not just through our conversation, but by doing research about uh, your organization and the work that you're doing. So um, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And yeah, we'll, we'll chat again. 
Yeah, I hope so. Thanks again so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, I'd love to 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 hear from listeners. Um, I'm I'm on Twitter. You mentioned a couple times at Torrance Cost. And uh, yeah, I'd love to uh, to to build some connections from this and, and keep the conversation going. Amazing. We'll be sure to include a bunch of links to Torrance Cost himself and Wilderness Committee, so that people can keep up to date on the good work that you're doing. I. Thank you so much, Torrance. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.